Welcome to Read by Example, where teachers are leaders and leaders know literacy. And we are joined today by Dr. Paul Thomas. Uh, Paul is a professor of education at Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina, and taught high school English in rural South Carolina before moving to teacher education. He is a former column editor for English Journal, National Council of Teachers of English, current series editor for Critical Literacy Teaching Series, Challenging Authors and Genres through Burrell, and author of Teaching Writing as a Journey, Not Destination, essays exploring what teaching writing means and how to end the reading, and the book, uh, which is in its, I believe, second edition now, How to End the Reading War and Serve the Needs of All Students, Literacy Needs of All Students, a Primer for Parents, Policymakers, and People Who Care. NCTE named Paul the 2013 George Orwell Award winner. He co-edited the award-winning volume, Critical Media Literacy and Fake News in Post-Truth America. You can follow Paul's work at on Twitter at PLThomasEDD and um, Radical Scholarship at RadicalScholarship.wordpress.com. Welcome, Paul. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. And we have a few all could join, uh, could share too. Um, who you are uh, briefly and just what you do. We'll start with Mary. Um, I am a, a literacy consultant and now doing Zoom from because I'm in Honolulu and I'd rather not get on a plane. Um, and um, this is uh, year 51. Joy? Hi, I'm Joy Levey Taylor. And I work for James Madison University with student teachers. Before that, I was literacy coach, reading recovery teacher, and reading specialist. Deborah? Hi, I'm uh, Deborah Crouch. I'm a literacy consultant as well um, and a co-author of Made for Learning uh, with Brian Camborn. Hi, I'm Mary Beth Nicklaus, and I am um, with Eastern Harbor County Schools in Minnesota, and um, I'm a secondary level reading specialist, um, and this is my 34th year. Welcome, everyone. And I have a few questions for Paul, uh, but we'll definitely save time for um, any questions that you might have. Um, the first one, first one for Paul is, uh, you are consistently on point um, in your policy brief, um, which would link in the um, uh, newsletter, uh, the Science of Reading Movement, which is a condensed version of, I think it seems like your book on the topic, um, a nice summary, as well as with what you post online on Twitter and on your blog. What motivates you to keep coming back to this topic of the Science of Reading Movement? Oh, that's a really good question because uh, most of my career, I'm really a composition. I'm a writing person. And uh, when I discovered uh, Emily Hanford's hard words uh, early 2018, it really struck a chord, but I, I had no idea that it would get the momentum that it did. So I've, I've always been uh, a holistic literacy person. I've always been skeptical of over-focusing on things like grammar and phonics. And uh, although 
I, I taught high school English um, at Furman. I have taught uh, in our master's, our uh, master's literacy program. So I've been working with, uh, you know, early literacy uh, teachers who are getting graduate degrees and um, a former colleague of mine, Nita Schmidt, who uh, moved from Furman to Iowa and now she's retired. She's brilliant. Uh, she was an early literacy people and she, she brought me into SELT, um, at, at NCTE. And, uh, so I, you know, I had, I had had this kind of transition to being, uh, what I would say a literacy generalist where I understand kind of K 16 literacy or, or birth to grave literacy. Um, but, uh, my, my focus, I feel like is, is public work. Like, how do I talk to the public? How do I, how do I help people understand education? And uh, this movement just kind of intersected with that public work. And, you know, throughout 2018, 2019, I found myself blogging maybe too much, but I, uh, I had quite a number of blogs uh, on this. And I said, I've got enough for a book. Um, and I did see how it was um, developing in a direction that regretfully has come true uh that early kind of messaging has now become policy uh so in the last i guess that's what five years now um i have shifted uh very much into being a policy person uh which i think was the rightful place for me to go um and i do think uh trying to work on uh public narratives how we talk about uh, critical discourse analysis is a big thing for me. It's a center, it's a central part of, of my upper level reading and, uh, writing course, uh, at Furman. That's a requirement at Furman. They have to have an upper level writing and, uh, research, uh, course. So I think it was just kind of a perfect storm, uh, for me because I, I do feel like, um, it's really important for scholarly work to have a real world place. And uh, this felt way more um, uh, engaging. It felt way more uh, productive uh, than my composition work. Although, I, you know, my book before this was on writing. I'm still, I teach first year writing. I care very much about writing. Um, but reading is very central to sort of how we think about education in the United States. So it it seemed like kind of a natural development for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, your policy brief is very practical, very useful. I, it was easy to read, but, you know, you, you, you covered the, the essential topics of it and really gave, I think for me anyway, gave me some nice talking points right now in Wisconsin. We are, you know, we're dealing with it right now, right? This very week for, uh, it's up for discussion, uh, so to speak. But, um, you know, how might educators and parents best use this resource? to effective, effectively advocate for more reasonable policies. What can we do with this to, to make some kind of a difference or at least try to influence um, policymakers? Uh, so first I would like to say, I, I really am very proud of the, the policy brief. And I think a huge part of that was the NEPC uh, staff itself. Um, they did not make this easy. Uh, <laughs> it was a constant, I, I mean, I had, to get that, that was like a 6,000 word policy brief. I probably wrote 15 to 20,000 words and three or four drafts. And I was kind of, I was taken to task three or four or five times before it even went to peer review. 
Um, mm-hmm. And I think they should be commended for that. Um, you know, the the editorial group at N- NEPC weren't literacy people, so they were constantly going, "What do you mean by this? Uh, is this real?" Uh, and the, the the fun part was uh, being challenged on using the simple view of reading. Uh, you know, one person said to me, Paul, nobody uses that. That's silly. That's a silly term. And I had to say, no, it's a technical term. It's a real term. So I do appreciate that opportunity. And I will say any PC believes in practical. So it had to build to what do people do? Um, and I do feel really good about the sort of the policy implications at the end, um, so I, and, and, you know, I've been working, um, indirectly with Diane Stevens, uh, who, um, is a professor emeritus from the University of South Carolina. She taught several other places, but, you know, Diane has really perfected, uh, taking actual legislation, uh, legislation and copy editing it. <laughs> it's amazing. You know, here is where you're off base, but here is how to, uh, reform that. So I, I think what we have to do is it kind of parallels the book banning and the anti-CRT movement. Um, it seems almost silly to have to argue for access to books. It seems silly to have to say you shouldn't ban books. So I think it seems kind of pointless for a lot of reasonable people to argue for teacher autonomy and serving the needs of all students and and very simply put that's kind of what the policy brief boiled down to um we really targeted uh there's no such thing as one size fits all uh instructional practices so there should not be any one size fits all uh, mandates in uh policy and legislation we really, you know, kind of honed in on it's not the place of uh, legislators to ban or mandate anything uh, uh, that goes against what is, you know, a reasonable approach to day to day classroom practices. So I think, you know, what what can people do is I think uh, kind of target these these simple messages. Um, I've been trying to work better uh about clarifying that I'm advocating for teacher autonomy. I'm I'm advocating for uh meeting the needs of every individual child. I am not an advocate for reading uh, recovery. I'm not an advocate for balanced literacy. I'm not an advocate for National Council Teachers of English. I'm not an advocate for International Literacy Association. Um I real this is not I'm not being trivial here. I I I don't advocate for labels and organizations, even though uh, I love NCTE, for example. It's been my home for a long time, and I respect NCTE. But I think what we have to advocate for are key principles. And uh, I've called this challenge out many times, you know, on social media. Uh, if someone says they don't agree with me or that I'm wrong, I say, so you're saying that there should not be teacher autonomy. So you're saying we shouldn't uh, serve the individual needs of every student. And I really think we have to call people on the carpet about that. Um, I also think it's really important, and it might might be too much for most people. I just don't believe in misinformation. Um, you know, I, I, I get called out uh 
that I'm advocating for X when I simply say Y isn't true. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. So uh, just as a really good example to me is I, the attack on Lucy Calkins, I think, is is just unfair. It's it's not accurate. And, um, you know, Lucy Calkins units of study and Fontas and Pinnell's uh, work are in one in four schools in the country. It's 25% of the reading programs. Uh, I just tweeted out today, you know, uh, their programs are not the dominant programs in New Mexico. And New Mexico has the lowest NAEP fourth grade reading scores and the highest percentage of children below basic. So creating a, uh, you know, sort of creating a, uh, a bad guy is, is a trick of storytelling and regretfully the science of reading movement i mean sold a you know sold a story i mean it's about storytelling and they're manufacturing the crisis they're manufacturing the bad guy um so i i really just don't like misinformation and uh again i i I don't like the way balanced literacy is defined. It doesn't mean that I endorse balanced literacy, even though I don't have any actual problem with the concept of balanced literacy. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really a critical literacy person. Um, do I like whole language people and their philosophies? Yes. There are a lot of my friends. Uh, do I find balanced literacy ideas compelling? Yes. Uh, of course I do. Uh, I am a holistic person. Um, So I think we have to, you know, I have to, I think we have to keep sort of simple messaging on the key concepts that we support, but we also have to say, actually, what you're saying isn't true. Your definition isn't true. Uh, your cause of the problem isn't true. Your solution isn't true. Um, I mean, over and over, the national reading panel is just misrepresented. Uh, and again, I use Diane Stevens work. Um, you know, national reading panel found that Systematic phonics was no more effective than balanced literacy or whole language. Almost every single credible study says the exact same thing. The major study out of England said, you know, systematic phonics, no more effective than balanced literacy. We need balance in England. Uh, over and over, that's the truth. And then you've got the science of reading people saying as if, it, you know, it's the, it's the Emily Hanford mantra that it's uh, simple and it's settled. And neither one of those are true. Well, that leads into my next question, Paul, is, you know, this attention towards, especially phonics instructions, kind of this reason why kids are failing to read because they don't have enough of it, or we need more of it to ensure that they can read. It's, you know, and then picking on some of these targets, whether it's a person or it's a program or an approach, you know, are these, these things like a, a straw man for maybe avoiding bigger issues that we do need to address, such as poverty or for teaching and learning conditions um or is there some kind of or is there some reasonableness to what some people might be advocating for in the sor movement uh, where do you see that falling uh really nice job there i appreciate that because that's two other that's two other kind of key points that we need to hit on to me so um the part of my book and the policy brief that I'm most proud of is the historical perspective. And, you know, in the 1940s, um, uh, uh, draftees performed very poorly on literacy tests and, 
uh, Eleanor Roosevelt and, you know, the government, you know, uh, shouted reading crisis and John Dewey and progressivism was blamed. And uh, the woman I did my dissertation on, Lula Brandt, did an analysis and found out that most draftees went to traditional schools and had traditional instruction, like phonics instruction, <laughs> uh, had skills instruction. And there's uh, the the um, elementary English, which became language arts, uh, had a special issue on it, very similar to Reading Research Quarterly having two special issues on it today, or you know, recently in the 2020s. Um, there was one article, and they literally say uh, this at- this false attack on progressivism is to avoid the truth. The problem with literacy in the United States is poverty. You know, that was the 1940s. Um, and then it recurs, you know, the Johnny can't read in the 50s and 60s. Uh, same thing. It's it's phonics. It's lack of phonics. And then people are like, no, the people who are doing poorly are, you know, it's, are impoverished. And then, you know, it recycles into the, you know, 60s, into the 1990s. And then around uh, No Child Left Behind, it's this same thing. So, I think two other messages that we really have to make sure we make clear is, uh, you know, and I refer to Martin Luther King, um, you know, toward the end of his life in 1967, he said, we would find that instead of uh, reforming education to erase poverty, that if we erase poverty, education would improve. And there is nothing truer. Um, if children had, you know, universal health care, if they had uh, no food uh, deserts, if they had uh uh, um, steady homes, uh, if their parents had steady, well-paying jobs, uh, if there were books in their homes, the, you know, NAEP scores would go up and that's doing nothing in the schools. Now I'm not saying don't do anything in schools. I actually think this is the other thing that drives me crazy. Uh, I've been, I've been accused of being, uh, you know, a protector of the status quo and people who know me would, would laugh, uh, uh, they should talk to some of the people I've worked for, I think. Um, I entered education in 1984. I start uh, year 40 in the fall. And uh, when, I le- when I started education, I, I was a reformer. That's why I, wa- I wanted to do school better than it had been done to me. And then when I was in my doctoral program in the 1990s, I found out there were the, you know, the the reconstructionists. There were the, you know, uh, there was a whole movement in the early 20th century, you know, to reform schools. And so I'm, you know, I I want things to be different. I want school to be different. And and you said it just a second ago. So we've got to address the lives, the homes, and the communities of children. I mean, we have to do that. And this constantly pointing at teachers and saying they don't know what they're doing and that schools are failing is a distraction. But simultaneous to that, teaching and learning conditions. I just cannot say that often enough. Um, there's been research for decades that uh, marginalized students are more likely to have beginning and uncertified teachers. That's a simple thing to address. We should guarantee that no child who is performing below what we believe they should be. Like, instead of using third grade test scores to retain students, why don't we use third grade uh, test scores to ensure children to have experienced certified teachers and low uh, student teacher ratios in fourth grade? 
That's a much better policy. And I would 100% endorse the use of standardized testing for that. Uh, but we're not going to do those things. I mean, that's what, that's what's kind of criminal about this. Um, it, a special, special needs children. Uh, we're overly concerned about dyslexic students. I am not saying that we should not be. Absolutely, we should be concerned with dyslexic students. But special needs students are really highly likely to have beginning and new teachers. Uh, special needs students are really highly likely to have un- and uncertified teachers. Those are things that could be addressed. Uh, and that, I think that would solve a lot of problems. So systemic forces outside of the school. And then um, I agree, this is a National Education Policy Center thing also. Uh, instead of accountability reform, we need equity reform. So mm-hmm. inside schools, um, I would say no grade retention. Um, um, you know, we, we should not be, uh, you know, strat- stratifying students. We should not be gatekeeping students into courses. But the biggest thing to me in school is a teacher assignment. Um, the dirty little secret about education nobody wants to talk about. If you teach long enough, when someone retires, you get the good kids. And I think that's one of those little dirty secrets that we don't talk about. Uh, beginning teachers, uh, too often um, administration sits down. The, the the remaining teachers get to pick their courses for next year and the leftovers go to the new person. That is a terrible policy. It's a terrible way to treat children. And these are things we could address and we we never talk about them and we don't do them. So I think as you I think you were implying, I think a lot of this is about uh, ways to avoid doing the hard stuff. Yeah. And yeah, for sure you you hit on a lot of topics there within that that was a couple of questions and and I won't bring it up here just because it could it, who knows where it will go, but the money aspect too of you noted on Twitter that a lot of this, these arguments and blaming are actually creating a space, a void in which then um, certain individuals, publishers, organizations can then sell their programs, um, trainings to to solve the problem that they created in the first place. So, um, but that's um that's a whole nother topic almost I think but um well I think I I could I could interject there real quick I think people don't understand uh and and I just had a conversation with a producer of a major news series yesterday morning instead of chasing the right reading program we should reevaluate that we use reading programs it's much simpler than that um in at WSRA I think it was 2019 it was right before COVID um Teachers taught me a lesson. The problem that they had with units of study was not units of study. It was how it was implemented. And we too often hold teachers accountable for implementing a program instead of serving the needs of students. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important distinction. And it would also, I think it would address the money issue. We do, I think we do spend too much money on educational materials. And then we feel obligated to holding teachers accountable because of that investment. Yeah. Too much money and resources, not enough in the ultimate research, which which is teachers and 
students as well. And Absolutely. How can we structure students to be resources for each other? Well, I'd like to open it up to other people who have questions here, or Paul, if you have anything you'd like to share, just that's come to mind, but um, just open the floor up. Okay, I was just going to come back to the, um, and I appreciate this so much because it led me back to what you wrote. And one of the best things about this is that it's so specific to here's suggestions for decision makers and policy makers. And so one of the, and I loved every one of them, but one of the things that I kept coming back to is at the very end, um, two that really keep are really in my head. One is be wary of overstatements and oversimplifications within media and public advocacy, acknowledging concerns raised, but remaining skeptical of simplistic claims about causes and solutions. And one of the challenges is that there are so many, well, the policymakers, the people who are making these decisions, they want oversimplification. They want to know, all I have to do is write a check and there's nothing else I have to do. And if because they don't have a background in education, that sounds really, really compelling. And then the other one is just a couple down from that, uh, which is so important, recognize student-centered as an important uh, research-supported guiding principle, but also acknowledge the reality that translating research-based principles into classroom practices is challenging. So not only do they want those oversimplifications, but they want to be able to take the research and say, here's what the research says, which is complicated research. And so we're going to do this. You know, it brings me back to RTI, where the solution was the walk-to intervention model. So they they know the importance of supporting children, but they're going to find the easiest possible, not just the one that they can write a check for, but the one that's going to be the easiest possible to implement. So, you know, those just loom really large in my mind. And I don't, um, I, I don't know how we undo. Um, let me just say one more thing. I remember so many times walking out of a session where someone, usually someone with a really big name, said something really absurdly ridiculous, like um, time reading, independent reading doesn't matter, and does it in such a compelling way that people people I really admire walk out of that session and say, oh my God, I never thought about that before. And that's been happening with the science of reading too. Oh my God, I never knew that. And so it's really smart, lovely, wonderful people. But, but I... I I, I, for some reason, <laughs> it's um, it's coming across not as what is being said, but as uh, I don't know, I don't know. It's like um, it's a really weird thing to me. Yeah, and, uh, one advantage of my career being pretty eclectic is I, I've, I've taught some graduate level leadership courses, and I used to use Howard Gardner's uh, book, Leading Minds. He's known for multiple intelligences, but uh, intelligences, but <clears throat> I don't think that's his best work, actually. In Leading Minds, he directly says all the research shows that leadership functions on black and white statements. Uh-huh. And there's very little you can do about that. So there's an ethical obligation. If you're going to compel the public 
you're going to have to be relatively simple. So to me, I think the line is between simple and simplistic. Um, and the challenge we have, and again, the conversation I had yesterday morning really, really drove this home to me <clears throat> is we're in a bind because our message is not simple. And the SOR people are, it's become a cult of personality because they're doing the simple and settled and it is very compelling. Uh, I've, like you, Mary, I know some very lovely people who have bought it. I knew some, and I still know, I know some lovely people, bright, who bought Teach for America. I know some lovely and bright people who bought charter schools and mm-hmm. Those have now passed, and we know they didn't work. Uh, Teach for America has really dramatically fallen off. Um, and some of the best people I know in education uh, went through Teach for America. So it's it's not the people, um, you know, the, the simplistic message uh, that you just had to demand more of students. You know, it's that soft bigotry of low expectations. And if you just demand more and if you just work harder, these kids will succeed. And then those poor people who did that and those children didn't succeed, they were devastated. So we do have a problem. Our message is not simple, uh, but that's the only message that works. Um, and also, I think uh, another point of yours, Mary, is the idea of evidence. Um, I think I said this the other day in something, but the most important evidence um, is the child in front of you. Um, I, the first... Uh, five or 10 years of my teaching, the most, the best thing that happened to me was humility. Um, I had missionary zeal. Um, I came in thinking I knew what I was doing. I kind of had my butt kicked at the national writing product project. Uh, I'll shout out to Brenda Davenport. She, I mean, almost literally kicked my butt. Um, she saw something in me. She did respect me, but she, she took me in a room and she let me have it. And, it was a, it was a, you know, it was an awakening for me. Uh, I softened, I backed up off of my certainty, um, and I learned to work from the ground up. Um, research and theory, I, I love theory, I love philosophy. Um, these things are important, but they're, they're, they're for you back here. I mean, they sit somewhere back here. Um, but it's the, it's the actual child in front of you. So, you know, I've learned, you know, Furman has really taught me a lesson too. I mean, for the last 21 years, um, my college, uh, first year, uh, writing students, uh, are a different type of human than what I taught in rural South Carolina in high school. Uh, so, I try to work from the student and instead of imposing Paul's beliefs about writing, Paul's beliefs about learning, um, you know, one simple thing is we, we're always told that, that you have to give uh, students credit for uh, class participation. Um, and so that means, you know, and I, I know a lot of professors still put that on their syllabus and there's a percentage for it. Well, Furman has taught me that students can participate by being completely quiet in the room. And mm-hmm. I had to listen to that, you know, which is kind of ironic. And <laughs> I don't say that anymore. I don't say you have to speak in class. You have to participate this specific way. Um, so I think, you know, one of our messages, I think, has to be that, you know, evidence is not simplistic. And the most important piece of evidence is the child in front of you. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Mary.
Can I can I ask a question, Paul? Sure. How do you simplify in a way, I guess, is how do you talk to student centered in a way that keeps it understandable for the for people who, who don't come at this from look at the child and recognize what children are bringing and that sort of thing? How do we talk to that? So I, um, I agree with you. I think that piece is huge. Um, yeah. And I mean, in teacher education, that's one thing I do is I talk about artifacts of learning. Um, you know, and I talk about things like, um, I really think music teachers, um, art teachers, coaches, um, that I think the average person understands that. So, uh, there was a piece in Phi Delta Kappen many, many years ago, somewhere in the 1990s. And the guy said, what if we had two football teams line up every Friday night and take a multiple choice test to decide the football game? Parents would revolt. <laughs> My hometown, the entire town would revolt. So, you know, in art class, we have a child actually draw artifact of learning, and then we work from there. Um, until the child does a drawing or a clay sculpture, we don't have any way to teach them. Uh, we have children play instruments. We have children sing. We have children, you know, play the sport. So I think putting it in terms of behaviors, Having students do the thing. And I, I think that's where my holistic urge is. Um, I was a soccer coach. Uh, I coached for quite a few years. And uh, I love scrimmage. Uh, I was a big fan of scrimmaging. Uh, so you could, in the moment, you could teach. Uh, of course, we did some skills. But to be perfectly honest, that's not that effective. Uh, and if people practice the same thing over and over incorrectly, they're not actually learning. They're getting worse. They're, they're building the wrong tools. So, you know, uh, the joke of my teaching high school was, uh, I graded about 4,000 essays a year for 18 years. Um, and, and I graded about 6,000 journals on top of that. So my joke was, you know, it was volume, volume, volume. Um, until a kid wrote a paper, I did not know what they needed. Uh, until a, until a player, you know, you know, lined up as a center back and played and played a soccer match, I did not know what he needed. So I do think we have to talk in terms of sort of holistic behaviors that we're trying to teach, uh, children to do. And then our job to me is mentoring. It is coaching. I love the word coach. I think, I think the right kind of coaching, not the stereotypical United States coach that screams and cusses, but the, the kind of coach that goes, look, you did it this way. Now do it this way. Like, you know, and, and here is why. Uh, um, one thing I loved about soccer is it's conceptual. Um, and it's, it's not, you know, you don't run plays and, and it's not very structured. The time, the clock runs and it's these concepts. So it's these holistic behaviors and these con at the conceptual level. What should you be doing? But the key ele element is why. Why are you doing this? I hope that answered your question, but I, I, I feel like I did. Yeah. Thanks, Deborah. Thanks, Paul. Joy, did you want to just throw that question out of um, how do we engage in this? I think Paul spoke to that previously. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to follow up on, though, Joy, with regarding how to engage in conversation around this time. Yeah, the article that he put out was really, that you put out, Paul, was really helpful. Mary and I follow it a little bit better. 
yeah. Thank yeah, I do you. think, I mean, I think a lot of, um, I mean, a lot of this movement is public. So I think a lot of it is on social media. And uh, there is a problem. I do think Twitter is not a good place for discussion. Uh, I haven't had good luck with it. Uh, I've had a few people try to, you know, I had a couple, I had one person a couple times lately, very kindly say, would you mind, you know, let's have a discussion about this blog post. I, I don't. Uh, there's just not enough room. There is no chance for nuance. Um, I joke and say the best way to deal with uh, social media discussions is don't do it. But a more practical one is, uh, are you dealing with a serious person? So probably six months ago, a, a woman who is an SOR person engaged with me. She was patient. She was kind. She was clear. I did two or three tweets with her. I realized she was a serious person. We had a very long Twitter discussion. She didn't change her mind. I did not mute her. I did not block her. Everything was fine. The key was not that we agreed with each other. The key was that she was a serious person. And that's the hard part. Um, I often check the Twitter uh, bios. If there's if there's four followers, probably not serious. If they've got the little hashtag amplify, probably not serious. Um, way too much of the science of reading movement is driven by the exact thing that Hanford is attacking. If it is, in fact, a problem that Lucy Calkins has made money, which is an odd thing to accuse somebody of in the United States, then the science of reading people who are driven by market intentions are just as guilty. Um, my home state in the most recent budget, $15 million for letters training. We're a very small state. Can you imagine how much state money, tax mm -hmm. money, is being earmarked for letters training. I don't trust advocates of letters any more than I trust anyone. I mean, we learned that. The tobacco industry said cigarettes were okay. They had a market interest. So I do think we have to navigate public discussions with serious people. I do not mute people instantly. I generally give everybody one or two tweets. I give you a chance then it's it. And it's just little things, right? Um, are they selling something? Do they have almost no followers? Um, do they lie? I mean, I've got people out there. I know I muted them, so I didn't block them, but they can still do it. They say, don't listen to Paul Thomas. He works for Reading Recovery. That's just a blatant lie. Mm -hmm. um, there was an organization that blogged and said, don't listen to me because I'm not a teacher. I start year 40 in the fall. I've been a literacy teacher for 40 years, over five decades, since the 80s. It's just a blatant lie. So lying means you're not a serious person. Having a, you know, if you're trying to sell something, you're probably not a serious person. So I just think, you know, navigating that space, we're looking for serious people, and then we can engage. And I, I had the pleasure of watching Paul have a a uh, panel discussion with other serious people. It was a research at uh, the Wisconsin State Reading Association conference. He was 
talking with a researcher at UW Madison. I'm a principal out of California. Um, and they did not all agree. I think we talked about this later, Paul. Um, you did not all agree on the same issues, but you all were, were respectful the way mm-hmm. you talked. Um, you know, I hear what you're saying. Here's where I'm coming from. It was very, it was just a good conversation and I learned a lot. And I think I thought it was a really good model for, for what this could be, but unfortunately often is not. Right. And, and I, I really like just, Paul's point. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Paul. I, I really don't think we have to all agree. Like I, I don't, there's, yeah, there are yeah. people I love that I don't agree with everything about them. And that, and that's not, they're, that's not what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in a conversation like that, you have the opportunity to be a, have a fluid coming back and forth. That's impossible. But one of the things that I look for on Twitter, and I've only been re- uh, recently really trying to dig into it. There are just certain catchphrases that people use over and over. And that to me is a dead giveaway because it's almost like they came out with a SOR attack list of these are the things you want to say. Um, and, and, you know, it, it really is problematic that you can't, there's a big difference to being able to look at someone in the face, for example, and listen to what they're saying and then come back and respond to that. Then it is, it's, um, it's almost like it's a, the Twitter social media is a ping pong ball and, and it, it's really easy to caught up in it is, you know, especially when emotions are involved. So that's why oh I God. say the the SOR movement is too similar to the anti CR2 movement they're both mm-hmm. too often ideological. So mm-hmm. when you're ideological is very simplistic and narrow. So you've got, you do have recurring things to say that are just, they're just imposed onto the situation. They're not drawn from the situation. Um, I, someone I blocked, I did, I mean, I, I muted, I didn't see them, but I saw the response. And apparently somebody on Twitter just in the last couple of days said that, they listen to Emily Hanford because she's an expert. And I'm not. And the interesting thing there is not only have I taught literacy for 40 years, I taught journalism for 13 years and I've published journalism for the last 20. I have a level of, of expertise in both journalism and education. Um, and that that's where you can tell somebody's not serious. This is not a serious comment. That is just a blanket imposed statement. And so I think that is the ideological problem. It's not everybody who's in the science of reading movement by any stretch, uh, but there is a faction that is just, it's just an ideological, and it's the same thing, uh, you know, woke, <laughs> woke by DeSantis, woke by too many Republicans, uh, CRT, these have just been catchphrases. They're not, again, they're not serious people. They're not, they're not credible people. Mm-hmm. This conversation has been great as always. Um, yeah. Any closing thoughts or takeaways from anyone in the group that you'd want to share out before we uh, close, close things out? I'm such a novice. I feel like at Twitter for sure. And um, all, I, I just, I was so focused on being in the classroom, working with teachers that I was so shocked when this whole SOR thing just seemed to slam in and I hadn't, I didn't have time to be on Twitter. Um, I shouldn't say I have time now, but um, it's been, I thank you so much 
Paul for all his informations out that you put out. And Mary, I love Mary. And Matt is great. I don't know you two, but I'm sure you two are great too. Um, <laughs> and um, I guess my question, my final question is, is your purpose then, wait, first I have to say that I thought that the way you went through and talked about Joy, politics Joy, and, I think you're, yeah. you're cutting out just a little bit, Joy, if you want to get a little That's bit. because I do all the hand stuff. Okay, because I thought that the all the information that you gave about politics and the movement of reading was so helpful for me. It just gave me a background because I came of kind of came in with balanced literacy when it was just kind of called balanced literacy. So all of that was helpful. But is is then if we think about the purpose of being on Twitter to share information like you do. So is that the best way to think about it as a vehicle for getting truth out there um yeah i would say i would say two things one uh historically we have told teachers not to be political which is a political demand by the way and we also keep classroom teachers way too busy uh (laughs) if you keep people with their head down they don't see what's happening to them so i do not expect teachers to sacrifice themselves. I don't expect K-12. I don't expect K-12 teachers to speak out. I absolutely, that is not an expectation. If you do find the opportunity, I think you said it perfectly. Most of my work that I do on social media is to teach. It's an extension of my teaching. I cite, my blogs are heavily cited um, I cite on, I, I link to, you know, peer reviewed journal articles, uh, you know, on Twitter. So I, I think you have to perform on social media, not to change people's minds that you're speaking to, but to leave a trail for other people to learn. I am rarely actually speaking to the individual I'm responding to. Um, I am leaving a trail for other people to learn from. Uh, so I do think that we have to, you know, don't, nobody's asking K-12 teachers to sacrifice themselves. Nobody's asking K-12 teachers to lose their jobs. As a matter of fact, I don't want you to lose your job. Um, I'm relatively safe. Uh, I'm even at a private university. If I were in Florida and I was at a public university, I would be toast. But, um, and my university <laughs> is incredibly supportive. I'm a white guy. Um, I'm tenured. I'm old. Um, let us do it. You know, let us take the brunt of the of the, the damage. Um, but if you do engage, it's not to change people's minds. It's to teach. Well said, Paul. And your policy brief, half brief is citations. I mean, it's just so well resourced. And I remember Peter Affelbach speaking about your work, too, and just said you were meticulous. And he was, I think, yeah. one of the first people he brought up about how to how to become more knowledgeable about this topic and stay engaged. So thank you, Paul, Thomas. Thank you everyone for being here. This has been great. And uh, we wish you all a good rest of the year. If you're still going, otherwise we hope you are, you are enjoying your summer break. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.